Good morning, Sunny Ridge. Uh, it's so good to be with you here this morning. Um, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them up to the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 4. We're going to be continuing our uh, journey through the Sermon of the Mount. Um, and just a reminder of our theme this year. Our theme this year is that we are going to return back to our first love. And as a leadership, the way we feel that God is calling us to do that is first that we need to love up, that we need to turn back to God, love Him with our whole hearts, make sure our love for Him is stirred again, um, that we're not worried about so much about program, the way things look, but we're really just worried about who Jesus is and knowing Him and loving Him. That we're going to love inwardly. This is love each other. We're going to be for each other. We're going to learn to love each other and love the world, which is the love outside. I love the genuinely love the outsider. That's love out. Uh, those are the three things that we feel that we're going to do. And so as we tackle the Sermon of the Mount, we need to remember that this is part of that. This is what the Sermon of the Mount is calling us to. It's calling us to return to our first love in Jesus and how that looks outwardly as we do that. And a couple of weeks ago, we started off this series and we, before we even dived into the major uh, sermon itself, we just spoke about there is this need for us to have a deep desire for Jesus, that we need to want him, that we need to want to have him, because if we don't, if our desire is anything else, the Sermon on the Mount is going to break us, because it's going to be too much for us to bear. But if we want Jesus, if we desire him, man, then we're able to persevere. Then this is something for us because this is what we deeply want. And therefore, we will allow these things to happen in our lives through the power of the Spirit. And then last week, we looked at the first beatitude. We discussed um, being poor in spirit. We, we said that this wasn't being physically poor, financially poor. But rather, this was being poor spiritually. And while... It might not be financially poor. There's some similarities to it that we discussed that like you are in deep need when you are financially poor. So spiritually, we are in deep need of God. We spoke about how while you need to be honest when you are financially poor, there's no way of hiding when you are really, really poor. There's no way of hiding it. And so in the same way, spiritually, there's no way of hiding our state before God. We are honest about who we are in light of Him. We've spoken about a lot about this this morning. And lastly, we said you're completely dependent on somebody else's to help you in their generosity when you are financially poor. Same, spiritually poor. We are completely dependent on Jesus. Completely dependent on Him. And we see Jesus model this Himself. Remember, the Sermon of the Mount is not something in which he is telling us to do, in which he has not done himself, but rather this is a, 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 a way to live by the Spirit just like Jesus did. And so when we look and think of uh, poor in spirit, we look at Christ, we see that he was poor in spirit too. Man, he humbled himself. We sang about that this morning. He humbled himself. He came down. He gave up uh, all of it so that he might become man, fully God and fully man, but to give it all up so that he might die for us. He humbled himself. We see a poverty of spirit in Christ in which he models for us in which we can follow. But also when we look at the work of Christ, when we look at the cross, we realize, man, we are poor in spirit because there was a Savior that had to come and die for us because we could not save ourselves. There's a Savior that had come die for us because our right standing before God was wrong and there's nothing that we brought to the table so Jesus had to come 
And so as we look to Jesus, we see poverty of spirit modeled, but we also see it in us. We see that we are poor in spirit. But remember, when it comes to these beatitudes, and this is important, is that we never graduate from these things. There's never a point in which we are no longer poor in spirit. There's never a point in which we no longer mourn or we no longer hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is something that we are all the time. And we spoke about two imageries. We spoke about one being a ladder, remember? Man, you have to first be poor in spirit before you can do the next one. And after today's one, you can do next week's one. But if you don't get this right, you can't ever move on to the next one. Does that make sense? So we've got to make sure we keep that in mind, that we always are these things, and we need the first one to move on to the second one, and the second one to move on to the third one. So it is essential for us to remember that we are poor in spirit as we tackle today, otherwise it's going to make no sense. It's going to make no sense while we mourn. It's going to be, make no sense to us at all. So with that in mind, let us read the passage in which we're going to be looking at this morning, verses Uh, Chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, it goes as follows. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. It's talking about Jesus here. And he sat down and his disciples came to him. And he's opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And today's one, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let us pray. Lord, we, we come before you this morning um, just aware that we need you. Lord, the words that I'm about to speak and about to say are, I pray, Lord, they would not be my own, but Lord, that you would speak through me. Anything that I say that is not of you, Lord, let it fall on deaf ears. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us the eyes to see uh, ourselves clearly, but you'd also give us eyes to see Christ clearly. That we come away seeing more of who our Savior is, more of who we are in Him, and Lord, the beauties and wonders that come with this thing. So I pray, Lord, that You move in us, that You help us to see more and more of who Jesus is. Amen. So when we look at the Beatitudes, there's two sections in the Beatitudes. There's the discomfort part, the part that doesn't make us feel good. Last week, blessed are the poor in spirit. But there's also the blessing part, the comfort part. The, this last section, the ones that we want. Uh, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom today. Blessed are those who mourn. That's the, discomf- that's the discomforting part. But there's a comfortable part. There's a blessing part that comes with that. And that today just has to be fitting is blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So as we look through this, I want to unpack it in those two sections. First, we're going to look at uh, the uncomfortable part. And then we're going to look at the comforting part. All right? Get that? Okay, so the first thing that we need to realize is when we come to blessed are those who mourn is there's also two ways in which we need to understand this. There's an individual sense and there's an external sense. We need a, and the first way is we need to mourn our own sin. And when we think of mourning here, and I'm sure most of us, if not all of us, have had an experience in which we have mourned in our lives. If you haven't, life guarantees that it will come. There will be parts of mourning. There's five stages of mourning. Um, There's first now, then there's anger, and there's a couple more. Uh, But there is this period in where we need to come to a point where we just cry, where we just let it go. 
crying and mourning over loss and pain, that is part of the healing process. I've done uh, counseling in the past, uh, recently, I say recently, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, there was an accident, in a car accident for the Selborne College boys, I don't know if you remember it, and uh, a couple of the boys died, and being an old Selbornian, I, I was part of the guys that was asked to please go and, and counsel, and we went off and we spent some time there in the morning, and different boys who were feeling hurt could come and they could deal with it, and we could talk and speak to them about it. It was a really tough morning as you had boys from all ages coming in and and in tears. But what was amazing was there were some boys that were coming that didn't really know the boy at all. They were coming in emotional, broken, uh, really weeping. And when you asked them, how did you know the boy? No, I I used to see him at school. And you're going, how, does, how do you get to a place where you didn't really know the boy, but yet this is it? And, and what happens is often another loss that might not necessarily be related to that one is the reason why they were crying. If you dig deeper, you find out that they had lost family members a few years before, and yet they had been suppressing their feelings and had been in denial and had been through all the other stages, but they never really mourned. And here it was at this point, years later, some unrelated event, crying and mourning. And if you dig far back, it goes to that. And the danger with us is that we, as we talk about the poverty of spirit, as we talk about who we are in light of God, that we have fallen short of His glory, that we are bring nothing to the table, that we go, that's okay, and we go into denial. We play it down. And there's this deep need for us in light of our poverty and who we are in God, that we mourn, that there's, a, there's tears, that we cry, that this is something that brings pain, that brings hurt, that's something we do not want. There's something that really breaks inside of us because of this. we can't just go, okay, that's good, let me move on. A real understanding of poverty of spirit brings mourning. And this mourning, however, needs to be one that brings Repentance. There needs to be a change that takes place because of this morning. We see in Scripture two different types of, at least in the New Testament, words that represent uh, repentance. And they have two different imageries. And the first one gives us the imagery of emotion. It's one of crying. It's one of mourning, kind of like we're talking about today. It's this emotional side of doing something wrong, right? Many of us, and I'm sure all of us can agree that there are things that we've done in our lives when we have sinned or or we have wronged someone that it brought us great grief, uh, remorse. We wish we hadn't done it. This is that kind of feeling in which we have here. This is the word that Jesus has used in the parable of the two sons. And Jesus tells a parable of a father that goes to one of his sons and says to his son, um, uh, please, can you go and work in the vineyard for me? And the son uh, says, no, he won't. And then what happens is after a while, he repents. There's this emotional remorse. He feels bad about it. And he goes and he works in the field later. And, and the father goes to another son and says, will you go work in the field? And the son says, yes, but he doesn't. And essentially, Jesus is just saying that he's talking to the Pharisees. He's saying to the Pharisees, man, the first sons are like the, the Gentile sinners who, who did badly. They, they didn't choose God, but now they will choose me. But you said you are for me, but you never are. But there we see with the son this remorse, this, this emotion that takes place in his repenting. 
It's very, very important here. And we see there's an action that takes place. Because the same imagery that is used here, the same word used for repentance here, is the same one that's used for Judas, believe it or not. After Judas had denied Jesus, uh, not denied Jesus, had, had betrayed Jesus, after all that happened, there was this word repentance. The same word used of remorse. But the challenge here for us, church, is that there needs to be an action that takes place. Because we can contrast it between uh, Judas and Peter. What happened with Judas? He betrayed Jesus, but there was remorse afterwards. There was this emotion. There was weeping that took place afterwards. The same thing happened with Peter. While he didn't necessarily betray Jesus, he denied him. And afterwards, what did he do? He wept. He cried because of it. Two very similar things, but two different responses. Peter's response is one that he returns back to Christ. This relationship that's restored, where with Judas, his one is of despair and self-hurt. He will go and kill himself. Two different responses. And the danger that we have when it comes to seeing our state before God is this, is that we think, man, I'm bad. And there's an emotion that comes with it. There's a, a, a repentance feeling to it, but there's no action that has changed. And there needs to be an action that takes place after we feel the state in which we have. So what does that look like? What does that action look like? Well, that comes with the second word, repentance, that we see used in the New Testament. And that one literally means changes, change one's mind or think differently. Think about something differently. Last week, we spoke about Josiah. Remember, those of you who weren't there, Josiah is a young king. He's about 18 years, eight years old when he takes over as king of Israel. And in the 18th year of Josiah, when you can imagine, he's a prideful young man, got everything that he wants. He gets to demand and rule the kingdom. All is his, an 18-year-old having that much power. How does that sound? That sounds like a bad idea. And so there's an arrogance to him. You can assure it. And yet he stumbles upon the law through various events and it's read before him for the first time in his life. He hears about the word of God and the majesty of God is displayed before him. He hears about his power, his holiness. He hears about his rules and statutes that he needs to follow. And in light of this majesty of who God is, Josiah, this prideful young king, his heart is broken. He sees himself for the first time, not in a comparison to his peers, but in comparison to God. And there's a poverty of spirit that takes place. But it moves from a poverty of spirit to a place of mourning. Josiah weeps before God. He tears his clothes. And through a series of events that take place after that as well, what happens is Josiah gets and gathers the kingdom before him. The whole of Israel, who are serving other gods, and he stands before them, and he makes this covenant before them that he and Israel will do this. 2 Kings 23 verse 3 says, this is the covenant that he makes, to walk after the Lord and keep his commandments and his statutes, his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and his soul, to perform the words of this covenant that are written in this book, and all the people joined him. But Josiah doesn't just make this promise in this covenant before God, there is an action that takes place. This mourning moved into an action. And it went forth and he goes and he starts to do reforms in the land. 
He goes and breaks down idols. Other kings had done this before, break down the high places of the other gods, but they had stopped just in Jerusalem. He went and broke them all down in Jerusalem, but he didn't stop there. He moved over to uh, Judea, the province. He didn't stop there either. He moved on to Israel. He didn't stop there either. He even went on so far to go to other nations and start to break down their uh, idols and high places in Samaria. There was this deep change in his heart. There is this deep moving that he is going to repent, but there is action that took place. As a result, Josiah is called this by God in 2 Kings 23 verse 25. It says, before him, this has been Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor anything like him arise, nor anyone like him arise after him. What an amazing heart change. He wasn't the greatest in wisdom, that was Solomon. We see that kind of statement happen six times in the book of Kings. There was no one like him before, no one like him after. But the reason why it's said is by Josiah is because it's this drastic change. He's the biggest that changed in repentance. Heart who was far from God, now a heart that was for him. Church, godly repentance and mourning as we see here is repentance of sorrow, but one that results in action. That is repentance. And there's this danger for us this morning that we stand here and we go, Lord, I feel my sin. I see it in light of you and it brings an emotional feeling, but it does not bring change. And there's this deep need for us to bring change because there are different forms of regret. Man, sometimes when you're caught doing something wrong, the reason why you apologize is not because you were doing something wrong, but rather because you were caught. Sometimes there's remorse, not because of what we did wrong, but rather the consequences that are now going to happen as a result of it. And godly repentance is looking, God, man, I have, I have sinned against you, and I am going to change. That needs to happen. And may you be encouraged this morning, knowing that when you are convicted of your sin. As awful as it feels, it does. I know, I'm convicted regularly. May we be encouraged that the God of all creation, the God of this universe is speaking directly to you. He cares so much about you that he wants you to change. Change this. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that incredible that God speaks to us? Yes, it's not necessarily nice, but as parents in this room, we will understand that discipline is always out of love. You love your child, that's why you tell them to change. God loves you. God loves you. And that's why. Be encouraged that the Holy Spirit, God who dwells in you, is encouraging you to change, to be different. But let's stop talking about the discomfort part. There's a comfortable part that comes with it. There's a comfortable part that comes with those who mourn. Those who, who mourn over their sin, there is a comfort that comes with it. And the first thing that we need to understand is that this, there, there's first things that we need to understand why there is comfort available to us. The reason why there is comfort available to us, church, is because Christ mourned. 
The reason why we have an opportunity to be comforted of our mourning is because when Jesus looked upon the sin of the world, he cried. We see this in, in Luke 19 as Jesus has just pronounced a whole bunch of woes onto, um, onto the people of Israel. Woe is you to the Pharisees. Woe are you this. Woe is you that. And afterwards, as he leaves Jerusalem, he looks on upon Jerusalem. He sees the hardness of heart. He sees their sin and he weeps. It's because that Christ looked upon us with a similar heart that he wept and cried over our sin. And it was driven by his love that would drive him to the cross so that he might die for our sin, our shame, and our guilt. It's because Christ mourned that we can be comforted. Isn't that amazing? And the reason why this is available to us is because Jesus died for us. And this comfort is available to all who believe in Christ. We believe in him. There is this comfort that we can be saved from our sin. Now, this is for the believer as well. And we look upon the cross and we're reminded again daily that there is sufficient work that has been done on the cross through Christ. That my sin has been taken away all because of what Christ has done. There is a comfort that comes in for those who mourn over their sin knowing that Jesus has paid for it all. There's a comfort there. But the work of the cross goes far more than just the fact that we have been saved from our sin. There's more to it than that. What Christ has done for us on the cross is not only saved us from our sin, but he has saved us into much. He saved us into being sons and daughters of the living God. He saved us into being his masterpieces or his workmanship, as Ephesians 2 verse 10 says. He saved us into being his priesthood. He saved us into being the body of Christ. He saved us into being ambassadors of God. There is this amazing thing that we now have in Christ. This is who we are. We are children of the living God. We are new creations in Jesus. The old has gone, the new has come. There is a comfort for those who struggle with their mourning, knowing this is who I am in Christ. But the challenge that we have is this is that we need to find the balance between, between being poor in spirit and who we are in Jesus. Because remember, I've said this morning, and I've said last week as well, that we never graduate from being poor in spirit. So if we are in a place where we go, man, I am completely dependent on this God. In light of who he is, I bring nothing to the table. How does that work with going, I am son and daughter. I am an ambassador. I am holy and righteous because God sees me because of that, because of what Christ has done for me. How do we balance those two? And here it is, and I hope I get this right. Is being poor in spirit is seeing that we are dependent on him, that we bring nothing. When we are sons and daughters of the living God, it is because of who we are in Christ. We are holy in Christ. We are a new creation in Christ. It's nothing that I bring that make me these things. And so I can be poor in spirit knowing that I bring nothing to the table, but at the same time be comforted from the fact that in Jesus I am different. I am a new creation. Does that make sense? And the challenge is when we become Christians, sometimes we become prideful of who we are. We think I'm a son and daughter because I have done something right. And in doing that, we make less of the gospel. We make less of Christ. We make less of what he has done for us. But I bring nothing. I'm dependent on him. Oh, is there comfort in Christ and in Christ alone? That's where we find it. Man, I mourn. 
I mourn because of my sin, but I am comforted because of who I am in him. There's a second way we need to see this morning. And, and the first way, that first morning, isn't something that lasts. Hear me out here. I've talking about that I've spoken about talking about, that's not even a word. I've spoken about the fact that there, we never graduate from it. But from this type, that first morning, we aren't always, oh, I'm bad, I'm a bad guy. We have that tendency to have that when we're poor in spirit. We think we go the complete opposite. I'm the worst, I'm not good. And that's not attractive at all. We're called to be light of the world. That's not attractive. That's not what we're called to be. It's a humility of, I bring nothing but in Christ. But it's not beating ourselves down every 30 seconds. But there is a, a moving on from this, this morning, that first one I spoke about. There is. Because there's joy in Christ and who we are. And when we sin, man, we mourn again. But it doesn't continue on forever. But the second morning is one that lasts always. The second morning of us, the way we mourn here is one that we do not graduate from. And it is closely linked to the first one. That's why I spoke about it. it is, you cannot do the second one without the first one. So let me tell you what the second one is. The second morning is that we look at the world around us. We see it's sin. We see how it's messed up. And we mourn because of it. We mourn because there is hopelessness. We mourn because there is pain, because there is suffering, because there is hurt. We see all this mourn, uh, mourning and hurt around us. We see people trying to solve it themselves, and we mourn because they have no hope. Not from a place of pride. We've got it right, and they don't. Rather, because out of our poverty of spirit, knowing that we've been saved by grace, that we have this new hope, that we wish they had it too. That we look at this world and we go, we want them to have what we have. We want them to know where the hope is, and that is in Christ. And so we mourn. Because we realize that there's no human institution or organization in which is able to make a difference. The DA, the ANC, the EFF, whoever you support and put your ballot on, I do not care. But trust me, none of them are going to bring the change in which we long for. None of them. They can't. They can't usher in the kingdom. The only one that can usher in the kingdom is Christ. And what we want is we want the kingdom principles to be here. That's what we mourn. That's what we long for. We want them. And the kingdom principles are that what we see in this Sermon of the Mount. That's what we desire. That's what we want. And so there's this role for us. The, the comfort for us then is this, is that the kingdom is coming. That is the comfort. And there's this, this balance that we have here. The kingdom is here, but not in its fullness. It will come again. It will come fully when Christ returns. And so the fact is that the, the kingdom is coming gives us comfort. But though we are waiting for it, there's a role for us to play church. We are called to usher in this kingdom. In our deep mourning for the world, we don't just sit back and look at it and go, no, we will not do anything about it. But this mourning, what, what does it do? It results in action. It always results in action. And so we look at those around us who are hopeless and we make sure that we go and give them hope through Christ. And there's this need for us to play a role in it. 
But I fear that so many of us think that we aren't capable of doing this. We, we understand the poor in spirit. We understand that we are weak. And as a result, what happens is we do not act. I can never share the gospel with friends. I could never do that. I could never go help those people down the road. just don't have the capacity to do that. I could never serve in, in Sunday school. I could never be a preacher. I could never ever do this or that or this because I am not capable. Whatever your reasoning might be, it might be your age, it might be uh, your situation, it might be your finances, it might be whatever it might be. We come up with excuses saying, I cannot because I am not good enough. Some of you, God has laid big dreams on your hearts. He's given you big dreams so that you might go too much. You, your heart breaks for those who are poor in the street. You wish something could be done. God has given you a dream to do it, but you think, I can't never do anything about it. God has given you a dream to help those who are homeless, those who, who don't have parents. Whatever it might be, God has given you dreams to do something, given you a mission to do, but you think, I am incapable. And so you do not. And church, while it might be true that you are incapable, the one who laid the dream and vision on your heart is fully capable. He is. And so while it is a good place to go, man, I am weak, I can't. It must not end there because who we are in Christ means that we can. Because He is able. He's able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And so we can go and do what God has laid on your hearts because He will give you the strength to do it. And listen here, may you not be discouraged by the fact that you might not do and change the world. You might never, and you probably will never, Jesus says we will always have the poor with us, you might never stop poverty altogether. You might never be able to stop the fact that there will be people who are homeless or children being abandoned. You might never be able to help everyone, but the ones that you help, you will change their lives. I wasn't going to say this, but I will. There was a, an evangelist who decided and felt that God had called on his heart that he must go and set up a revival in a certain little town. And so he did. Tent, particularly back in the 1940s. Back all the way back then. No, even 1920s. He set up a tent, tent was packed, preached the gospel for three days. And out of those three days, only one teenage boy came and gave his life. I can only imagine how discouraged that man must have been. I can only imagine. Only one. He thought the Lord had laid on his heart to go there. Only one. And that 16-year-old boy, if it was me, I'd probably ask 16, doesn't know what he's doing. He's probably going to go and end up doing all the bad stuff anyway. That 16-year-old boy's name was Billy Graham. Billy Graham was that name, boy's name. You never know who you're going to affect. Billy Graham went to preach on to 200 million. 200 million people heard the gospel because of Billy Graham. But it was because of the faithfulness of that one evangelist. You don't know who your lives are going to affect. If God has laid it on your heart, church, take courage because he will strengthen you to do it. We are called to do it. But there's also comfort also for those of us who are in Christ. For as we look at this world knowing that the kingdom is coming. So as we suffer, 
as we are persecuted, as we are mocked, as we go through hardships of life, whether it be illness or the loss of family members, be encouraged knowing that the kingdom is coming. That there will be a time when Jesus comes back with a sword in his mouth and the wicked will be cast out and this rule that will happen will be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who loves you dearly. That politicians will not rule this country nor this world, but it will be Christ. And there will be no more pain, no more crying, no more hurt, no more death, no more sickness. This is what we have hope for. And it's with this in mind that Paul says, I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing to the glory that is to reveal to us. It's with this in mind that we are able to endure, to be able to persevere, because we have a sure hope that the kingdom of God is coming. It is coming. And this is our comfort for those of us who are It might be painful now, but there will be an eternity of comfort and joy in a perfect world in perfect bodies, doing perfect work with our perfect Savior. That is what we hope for. That is what we hope.